0: Let me pray for us, and we'll begin. Father, I thank you that we can gather this morning and uh, open your word together, and I pray that as we do, that you would uh, be good to us as you have promised to be uh, in illuminating to us the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, and his great love for his people. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, come to a greater understanding and knowledge of the grace that we have been shown, uh, and that we would in turn uh, then go show grace to others. Uh, I pray this in Christ's name, Amen. Okay, so spiritual formation, we're looking at grace-based spiritual formation. That's the overview of what we're doing for the entire semester, Uh, and we've been kind of taking you down this pathway of looking at the way that grace is meant to inform who we are as human beings, who we are made in the image of God, uh, saved by His grace, and how everything in life is meant to be transformed by that grace. And so we looked at that in a variety of ways so far, how that grace transforms us in terms of our understanding of who we are and uh, who Christ has made us to be in Him in our justification. And then who Christ is making us to be in our sancti- sanctification currently in that process of growing more and more like Christ. And then we looked at the way that, uh, that our understanding of grace transforms who we are as individuals, and then how that, uh, that uh, understanding of grace transforms how we see our role in community as well, and how community needs to be transformed by grace. We can't just see ourselves as individuals transformed by grace, but actually individuals within community, and that's what we talked about last week. We talked a little bit about systems theory, and, and trying to understand the complexity of all of the mess that we're all in, and all the mess that we're bringing together uh, as a church, but the way that, uh, that that mess doesn't identify us, but who we are in Christ, made more and more into the image of Christ, is the thing that I, is our identity now. Um, and so now what we're going to start is a couple of weeks of looking at the way that Jesus applies grace to different individuals, uh, so, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter two this morning. Mark chapter two. It's on your sheet if you have your sheet. Mark chapter two. And we're going to be looking at verses one through two or one through twelve. Uh, next week, David's going to teach on uh, John four, the woman at the well. The following week after that, uh, Nathan is going to be teaching Sunday school, uh, and he's going to be doing. Um, uh, some, some very practical uh, things that he learned or, or he thought about while he was on sabbatical. Uh, and it fits nicely with what we're doing uh, in terms of spiritual formation and practicing, um, and practicing the, the spiritual disciplines. So he'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. And, he, and he'll talk about that in terms of applying that practically to his own life. And then the week after that, we're going to come back and look at Uh, John 3 in Nicodemus. So that's where we're going. That's where we've been today. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Mark 2, 1 through 12. Let me read this for us. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Okay, so I want to apply (coughs) some of the things that we learned last week uh, in looking at systems. And so, very briefly, go through this passage, go through... uh, you know those twelve verses, and notice the different systems that are there. Notice the different systems, and y'all tell me what those systems are. What are the systems? System by systems, groups of people. What are the systems in this passage? Yep, you got Capernaum. You got the city of Capernaum. Other systems. Okay? You got the scribes. Other systems. What? You have the friend group. That's right. I'll say the four friends. Four friends. All right. So you have the crowds. That's right. All right, any other systems? Those are the four that I saw, but there's probably more in there. Um, I mean, you could extend it out even further and probably say, you know, the nation of Israel, maybe northern Israel, where Capernaum is located is its own system. Um, Actually, there is another system that I just thought of. Yeah, I think so. I think they're, yeah, they're kind of a system within a system. They're not the ones I thought of, so we're adding to it. That's good. Disciples. I thought of the Roman Empire. Maybe it's on your sheet. I probably thought about that already. <laughs> I don't know. But the Roman Empire as a whole is like this other system that's ruling over the, um, the system of Israel, you know. Uh, any other systems that y'all saw? All right, I think that's good. Um, it's good to see the way that, uh, you know, when Jesus is speaking, he's not just dealing with individuals. He's dealing with these individuals that are coming with all of their baggage and all of their stuff. And all their stuff is largely, in, in many ways we saw last week, informed by their communities. Uh, so let's talk about these systems. Let's, let's kind of work out what's involved in these systems. What do you know about the city of Capernaum? What's important about the city of Capernaum? What do you think? It's where Jesus lived. All right. So this, it's kind of the center of, uh, of Jesus' home, right? Jesus' home or his home base. I mean, he's from Nazareth, but whenever he began his earthly ministry, his home base was really centered in this city of Capernaum. What else do you know about Capernaum? It was on the Sea of Galilee. That's right. Um, and because it's on the Sea of Galilee, what is probably driving the economy? Fishing, right? So, fishing. It's a fishing village. And in this part, here's something to keep in mind that you know, it's probably one of the more important fishing villages because of where it's stationed. Uh, on the Sea of Galilee, almost at the very top. And so as a port, as a, as a stopping point, um, it's probably really important for this fishing economy that's taking place. Um, so while it's a, it's a relatively small place, maybe only a few thousand people live there, so relatively small city, it's still a really important city. All right. Any, anything else about Capernaum? I do think it's important to remember that this is still a city in Israel. It's a city in Israel as part of that system of the nation of Israel under the, ro- the, the rule of the Roman empires. And so the people that live there would have seen themselves as Israelites. And they would have identified very strongly with Israelites. And, you know, first century A.D., what does that mean? It means there would have been probably a big synagogue that would have been there, and the synagogue would have ruled kind of the social life of the people in that town. As they're trying to identify as Israelites, the synagogue would have formed a, a big part of that. So you have this kind of religious uh, community that is um, dominating the social structures of, of the city. Um, w- Let me ask a leading question. Uh, it's, It's in northern Israel. It's on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, which means it's a border city. What is it bordering? What areas is it bordering? I am really challenging your geographical understanding of Israel today. What is it bordering? All right. Yeah, so Samaria is going to be on the west. And how did the Jews feel about Samaritans? Yeah. All right, they didn't like them. They were, um, they, were, they were, you know, kind of half Jews, half others. And they held to what they considered an impure religion. Okay, so that was on their, their west. What about the east? What was on their east? Syria, well, Syria in that area, maybe Jordan, modern day Jordan, what we would understand as Jordan, which is, which is what? Well, today it's Muslim, what would it have been back then? Pagan, very, very pagan, okay? So you have this area in Israel that is on the west, kind of, or, or yeah, on the western side, you know. You're surrounded by these impure Samaritans who don't hold to the true religion. And then on the east, you have the pagans who are trying to force their pagan views on you. What do you think that does to the people in Capernaum who are trying their hardest to identify with what's going on in Jerusalem? What do you think that does to them? That's right, lots of pressure, lots of pressure. Um, and I think that's really important that, to understand this, that Jesus chose that area to kind of begin his ministry, to do most of his ministry in this area that had these massive contrasts um, in an area, you know, full of people who more than likely, well, we'll talk, well, we can talk about the scribes uh, now and kind of go into that. Um, who are the scribes? Who are the scribes? scribes yeah they were the lawyers all right so we can boo and hiss you know lawyer I don't think any lawyers in here show of hands smart lawyers know not to raise their hands in a room like this right they're actually teaching our children right now so um, uh, yeah this the scribes I mean in many ways they're lawyers You heard one right there. All right. So, um, they sound so friendly, right? No, I'm joking. All right. So, uh, what kind of lawyers are these scribes, though? They're not just, you know, they're not just like insurance, doing insurance law or things like that. What kind of lawyers are they? What's that? Yeah, they're religious lawyers. The worst of the worst kind of lawyers, right? They're into legal law. I mean, uh, religious law. So... um, the scribes would have been the guys that understood and read through their Old Testament and read through specifically the law of Moses. And more than likely, these guys had the law of Moses, meaning the first five books of the Old Testament memorized so that in their practice of law, they could recount these things and understand these things. Because remember, they're trying to be ultra-Jewish. They're trying to be Uh, the best Jews that they possibly can be in this area of northern Israel. Um, And so uh, they would have been applying the law of Moses to every area of life, to everyone that's there, making sure um, and making rulings and judgment uh, for the people so that they can be Jewish and be connected with the religion that's going on in Jerusalem. Okay. Um, and because of that, the scribes are also doing things like they're drawing up contracts for the people that live in this town. And, and those contracts would have included a wide variety of things. It would have been business contracts. Um, it would have been marriage contracts, marriage licenses. Um, and part of that marriage license thing would have been tracing back their lineage and understanding their, the, the lineage of the people that are there. Um, now, what does that create for the scribes as a system, as a group? What does that give to the scribes? A lot of power, that's right. Um, because they would have had control over, um, in many ways, who got married, who didn't get married. Which families could have a thriving business and which families couldn't have a thriving business. Um, and... Because they understood and knew the law so well, in many ways, you were not allowed to question them. They could question you, but you couldn't question them. And I'm sure that most of this probably by and large was all done well-intentioned, but the way that power tends to operate when it goes unchecked is that it takes advantage, right? And so you see that in Jesus' interaction with the scribes throughout the gospel accounts that he's challenging the scribes in the power that they have. And they're always trying to come back with questions to Jesus about the law and the nature of the law. Okay? So those are the scribes. What about the four friends? What do we know about the four friends? Right? They're faithful, Right? Faithful to whom? Hmm? To their friend? Absolutely. I mean, they are are going through extreme measures to help their friend. Who else are they faithful to? I mean, you notice what Jesus says about them. When Jesus saw their faith. Okay. Um, Now, we're not given a great deal of Information regarding their faith and the object of their faith and all that. We're not given this theological treatise on them. But we know that Jesus is looking for something in the heart of these individuals. And they believed the right things about Jesus. They believed and understood the right things about Jesus. So what did they believe? Right. He had power, that Jesus was the one that had power. All right. So they... I'll just say Jesus had power. They believed that Jesus could heal him. Right? They probably didn't know all of the inner workings and understand all of the mechanisms that were at work there, but they knew that whatever this Jesus guy was, he could actually perform miracles. And So they were going, willing to go to great lengths to help their friend. Anything else about these guys? Yeah, they were very persistent. Um, yeah. Uh, a lot of times when you hear sermons uh, on this passage, you'll hear, you know, the focus being the friends uh, because of their persistence, right? Um, and because of those things. Very laudable things here uh, with these friends. All right. Um, if, for those of you, you can see here, I wrote crows instead of crowds. I meant to write crowds, not Crows. All right, so the crowds. What about the crowds? What are they like? What about the crowds that are pressing in around Jesus? All right, go back in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Look at verse 35. And let me read this to you. Verses 35 um, through 45. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came, came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will... You can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus, Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And they said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news. So that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Right. So what about the crowds? What were they doing? Okay. They were looking for Jesus, but what were they looking for? What do you think they were looking for? All right. They wanted to see the miracles. Um, and that's kind of a consistent thing that you get through the Gospel of Mark and, and the other Gospels as well is that the crowds were coming out. They were intrigued by Jesus and what he was doing. They, they listened to his preaching, but what they really wanted more than anything else was to see those miracles. They wanted to be entertained. Um, and so, it's, I mean, it's so interesting to, to see this, that even in the church today, um, you know, there's a big push to recognize the consumerism that's in, uh, in churches today. And the consumerism looks like people who come to church and are saying, I'm only here for what you can give me, and I just want you to feed me, and I'm here to, feed, to be fed. So you feed me, and I'm going to sit here, and I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to participate in the life of the church. I'm just going to let you give me what I think I need, right, consumerism. Well, that's been a problem in the church for a very long time, and you see that with Jesus, where people are merely coming to see and take what they think Jesus can give them, which is entertainment, which is uh, something miraculous, something to get, get them excited. Okay, Now, not everybody is there doing that, but this is fairly early in the life of Jesus, in his, or I'm sorry, in the ministry of Jesus. What are the crowds doing by the time... His ministry is over three years later. I mean, what are they doing to Jesus? Crucify Him, right? (laughs) They're there basically saying, crucify Him, give us something entertaining to look at, and the only thing we're going to be entertained by is His death. All right? That's what the crowds ultimately are like. And, well, we'll get to this in a minute, but I want you to just begin to think, how does Jesus respond to the crowds? Don't answer that question yet. But how does Jesus respond to these crowds? So, okay, what about the disciples? We're not really given a lot of information in this passage about the disciples, but use your imagination a little bit. What are the disciples doing? What are the disciples, what are they looking for? Right? They want a leader, right? Right? we didn't read all of this, but Jesus begins to call His disciples in chapter 1, and, um, and He's calling them based upon, and He's claiming to be the Messiah that's been, that you know, God's people have been looking for for thousands of years, and He's claiming to be that Messiah, and they are wanting Jesus to be that Messiah for them, which more than likely um, for most of them looked like, not necessarily a religious leader, although... There was a religious component to it, but they wanted a military leader more than anything else. They were looking for a military leader. Um, Which is why, in the passage we just read, when Peter comes and he's looking for Jesus, he's saying, Jesus, you know, why are you running away by yourself? Basically saying, you need to be up front, leading these people like a politician, right? Be up front, whipping them up into a frenzy, get your army together... And Jesus says, yeah, I got to go and He uses a, a specific word. He says, I got to go and preach to them because that's why I came. And Peter would have been like, what? Preach? We don't need people to preach. We've had that. That hadn't worked. And Jesus says, no, that's, that's why I came. Okay. Um, now, again, the Roman Empire... Um, let me just kind of fill in some of the gaps there. Um, the Roman Empire... They had had Israel locked down at this time. They had a huge military presence, but Capernaum in northern Israel, they would have had less of a presence. As long as these areas were, were paying their taxes, were paying their dues, they would have probably been given um, a certain level of freedoms. and. Removed from the larger cities like Jerusalem, they would have had a little bit more freedom. And yet we know that there was still a Roman influence in these towns. Um, Matthew, for example, was one of the tax collectors that was responsible for collecting the taxes in Capernaum. Okay? So Levi, Matthew, one of the disciples of Jesus, was from this area. Um, and so we need to understand that the people, the crowds... Um, would have felt immense pressure um, by their status in the Roman uh, Empire. They would have felt intensely the fact that they were not free, that they were not operating as the nation that God had set them up to be, and that they were actually under the thumb of another empire. Um, And in their understanding, many of the people in their understanding, it was their responsibility to kick out the Romans and to make sure that the Romans weren't over them any longer. So there's a long history of problems that the Roman Empire had with the Jewish people. Okay? Uh, so that's a whole other system that would have been there. And um, in other places you see groups like the Sadducees, um, as opposed to the Pharisees. The Sadducees were more of the liberal Jews of the day, um, and they were the ones that were wanting to work with the Roman Empire. And that's why the Pharisees who didn't want to work with the Roman Empire, that's why they hated them so much, okay? So um, you have that system as well. So I just want to give you the big picture here of all of those systems that are in place. And what's the focus of this passage? Or who is the focus of this passage? Do you see the way all of these systems are kind of coming to bear and they're all surrounding this individual of Jesus? Jesus is at the center of this. They're all there bringing all of their stuff in, and Jesus is dealing with all of these systems. What about individuals? Very quickly, what are the individuals that you see here? You see Jesus, that's right. Other individuals that are mentioned. Yeah. Jesus and the paralytic. Any other individuals? I just remembered one system that's on your sheet. Um, You have this house... Who lives in houses family. families live in houses um, think about this they're in this house there's crowds of people you know kind of in, in probably a relatively small house crowding around Jesus to listen to him and you have a family in the house a multi-generational family in the house as you'll find out later this is likely Peter's house Peter is married Peter has a mother-in-law um, so that means there are multiple generations of women in a house, and then those women in the house see a hole open up in their, in their roof, okay? <laughs> I guarantee you there's trouble in the family at that point. That's not really mentioned. That's not the focus. I just thought about that this, this uh, past week, right? There are, there's a family that's being involved in an entire system, and Jesus is dealing with that as well because we're told Jesus actually stays in that house, when he's in Capernaum, that's his home. Okay, um, individuals. You have Jesus and the paralytic, and really in this passage, that's it. You're really just given the picture of this of the of Jesus and the paralytics. Everyone else is kind of a system. Okay. Um, so, what is Jesus? What, what's Jesus going through? We gave I gave you some of the backstory of what's going on with Jesus. Here he is in Capernaum. What is Jesus doing? Hmm. What is Jesus doing? Yeah, Jesus is preaching. Jesus is preaching. He's teaching. um, And we need to understand in the ancient Near East and in most places in the world where they are not dominated by time, preaching and teaching doesn't look like, hey, you have 30 to 40 minutes to get your message out. And then we're leaving whether or not you're done. Okay, that's the way most of the world operates where, where we're from. And almost everywhere else in the world, they don't operate on that schedule. Uh, I had some friends who were, um, who were in Africa who were uh, preaching in Africa. Uh, it wasn't a friend. It was a seminary professor. Um, and he was there, and he was asked to come and give a sermon uh, and to do some teaching. And so um, everyone was supposed to be there at like 9 in the morning morning. And at 9, like, there were only two people there, but he was told there was going to be hundreds of people there. And throughout the day, you know, people just kind of trickled in, and so they didn't really get started until about 1 o'clock. And around 1 o'clock, everyone was there. Um, And then he preached, and he preached for about 30 minutes, a good Presbyterian sermon. He probably had three points, all starting with P, very good sermon. And he closed his Bible and went and sat down and the hundreds of guys that were there just sat there looking at him like, okay, keep on going. And he was like, well, that was it. And they said, um, and, 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 you know, the, the guy that organized it said, look, these people have walked, some of them, for hours to get here. They were expecting a little bit more than 30 minutes. And so uh, my professor walked up and he said, okay open your Bibles to Genesis, right? And he just took them from Genesis and said, we're going to go. And they stayed until well into the night doing that. That's how most of the people operate, which means Jesus isn't merely delivering, you know, a 30-minute sermon. More than likely, he is preaching and doing a lot of preaching and teaching. And he's interacting with the people. He's taking questions. He's answering their questions, responding to them about all of the things that they might want to deal with, specifically about His Messiahship and how He ultimately is the answer to all of the Old Testament. Which would mean He has to unpack all of the Old Testament. Um, So, before this point, how much has Jesus been preaching and teaching? It's the beginning of His ministry, but those verses we just saw, He had been doing this already a good bit. Probably for a couple of weeks, a couple of months... And the crowds already are coming and pressing around him. Um, Any teachers in here? Anybody teach? Any teachers? A couple teachers? Yeah. Uh, So, what do you like at the end of a long day of teaching? Uh, No longer teaching. Yeah. (laughs) No longer teaching. You're done. You don't want to do it anymore. Last thing you want to do is talk to anybody. Okay. And you need to understand Jesus is going and doing this over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And whenever he tries to get a break, what happens? <laughs> they come and they go, "No, you got to give us more. You got to give us more. You got to give us more." Now, you all work, you work hard bear. Yeah. Jesus Right. He, yeah, he needed a break. He sought a break. He sought rest, and he wasn't given that. What are you like when you seek rest and you're not given that? What are you like? The worst. Yeah, you are. I've seen you like that. You are the worst. All of us. All of us are absolutely the worst. What are you not prepared to do at the end of a long day of teaching, at the end of a long day of work, after you've been dealing with everyone else's mess over and over and over? And think about this. Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh, who knows intimately His holiness and the mess of everyone else, right? What does He do? How does He respond to the crowds? Who He knows. He knows their hearts. He knows what they're at. How does He respond? With compassion. What's another word for compassion? Mercy. Mercy. Grace. He shows them grace. And He continues to go. Praise the Lord that Jesus does not tire of sinners in the way that we tire of sinners. He shows grace and He shows compassion. We're going to have to close up here and, and finish very quickly. Um, Woody is about to open that door and tell me to stop. So I, I just want to, I want to highlight that to you. If you get nothing else, see how Jesus shows grace. The point of this passage is not to say, you go and show grace like Jesus does, because only Jesus can do that. The point is to say, and to show you, and to say, I need to be shown that grace, okay? Okay. Um, paralytic what about the paralytic what do you think the paralytic really wants from jesus what does he really want he wants healing and i know you saw this but what did jesus give him first he gave him forgiveness and that is that is incredible because everybody in the room all of these systems and everyone looking when they see that man drop down everyone says i know exactly what that man needs that man needs to be able to walk. And Jesus, looking at him through the eyes of grace, what does he see? What is that man's greatest need? That man needs forgiveness for his sins. He needs to be shown the love of God and to hear, my son, your sins are forgiven. That is, that is the thing that he needs more than anything else. And Jesus, looking at him through the eyes of grace, is showing him that by saying, your sins are forgiven. And he's doing that for the benefit of everyone else around and all of these other systems because what is our greatest need before God? Every human made in the image of God, post-fall, needs forgiveness. It needs to understand that that is who we are before God. Um, Now, What about you? I need to finish up quickly. How does that transform how you operate? Well, again, you should see how you need the grace of God, that your greatest need today is not whatever your felt need is. If you are lonely and scared, um, if you are in, uh, in poverty, if you are in some kind of physical need, as bad as that is, your greatest need is forgiveness before a holy God. First and foremost, that's what you need. Um, and by God's grace, that is what he came to give us. Now, in this instance, as a way to show how how Jesus has authority to forgive sins, he does do the healing, and he gives the man the healing. But we need to, we need to be transformed in this way to see that What's going on with our sinful hearts is uh, greater than any of the other needs that we might feel. Um, That doesn't mean our needs, other needs, our physical needs and those things are not real. um, Because Jesus obviously heals this man and does give that. But he doesn't do that for everybody. But everyone needs to meet Jesus in this way. To be shown the grace of Jesus Christ in this way. And that's why he came. Um, so I'm going to leave it there. Uh, any questions or comments? I'm sure there's a lot. All right, David can tie up any loose ends that I left untied. All right, he can do that next week for me. All right, let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you for giving us this time and for uh, allowing us to uh, open Your Word together as we go into worship, as we enter in uh, to uh, Your presence and uh, Your holiness. I pray that we would hear the same words that this man heard, uh, that our sins are forgiven by the loving graciousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that he would be our focus, that he would be our delight today. And I pray this in Christ's name.